amazing three chapters, all in red, and for the most part confirms almost 98% of the Bible just in these alone. So in other words, um, if you were wondering about the other portions of the Bible, whether they were Scripture or not, it's also taught here in these three chapters. It's an amazing section of Scripture. I'm not saying you could condense the Bible into three chapters, but if you were going to study three chapters, it would take you obviously a lifetime just to study these three. They're that deep uh, and amazing. And so he's on his third chapter here, wrapping it up, and um, it's on judging. And this is probably one of the the most misused uh, scriptures in the Bible. And um, we come always to any kind of topic, any subject that we're new to, with a presupposition as to uh, its meaning, its uh, the way it's going to go, how we expect things. And um, I, I remember studying electricity for the first time and, and wiring and all this. And I, I kind of knew, and I didn't know at all. I had wired light switches before and certain kind of lights, and I understood the process, and I thought of it like plumbing, you know, in one way and back the other, and that's not really how it works. Um, and so I came thinking already, and so as I was reading, um, I was looking at it through my lens of understanding of what electricity was and how it operated and what a three-way switch was and how hard that is to and, 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 and trying to wrap my mind around it. And as I let go of my presuppositions, it began to become more and more clear to me that I didn't know before, but I'm becoming more aware of the actual process of wiring something together. You know? Now, that being said, we have a, a certain understanding of the word being a judge or being judgmental, okay? Um, which is how he starts off here. And we use it, or it's used oftentimes, is don't be so judgmental, and we use it at the wrong time. Um, we think that when someone points something out that's obvious about us, personally, we tell them, don't be judgmental. In other words, what we mean is don't recognize those faults or flaws in my life. Don't tell me about those things. You can't tell me about those things because you have the same problems as I do. Therefore, the idea is we're both supposed to be quiet about it and not supposed to talk about it. And that is not what this means. And so as we go through this with our lens that we all have already, be open to what God's word has to say because Jesus will completely explain it to us in this one chapter and he will show us what it means and what it doesn't mean at the same time if we go beyond the first three verses, the entire chapter is going to show us how to properly view this world and the people in it and ourselves with a critical eye and not be judgmental at the same time, but still being able to recognize and say out loud and talk about sin, problems, overcoming, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging without being judgmental. And so we'll start with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, the plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. 
First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Already, we have a pretty good understanding because by the time we're done here, both people have had the, ob- the objects removed from their eyes by each other. So right off the bat, it doesn't mean we ignore the plank and don't talk about the plank and that we ignore the speck and we don't talk about the speck. It's just with a clear understanding of my own problems and my own sin that I need to work on, it causes me, recognizing that about myself, to be much more gentle when I am working on someone else's eye. It doesn't mean that we both ignore the problems that we can't see and that we have something that's irritating our cornea, you know. He's saying, don't just go into this not even considering the fact that you are in need of a Savior just as much as the person you're working on or helping or walking through or leading someone to Christ. How in the world can you possibly lead someone to Jesus, the Savior of the world, from the sins of the world without talking about that person's personal need for a Savior from their sins? Without having them look at you and say, don't judge me. I'm not judging you. Maybe this will help. The word judge in your Bible, in the red letters, has a little number one next to it, if you have any kind of study Bible at all. If you don't, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Sometimes in a study Bible or a center column reference, it has a, a little help for us. And the word can be interchanged. The word judge can be interchanged with condemnation. Let me help you read that then the other way. Condemn not that you may not be condemned. For with what condemnation you condemn, you will be condemned. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Does that help at all? It's the heart behind the matter. We don't go out ministering to people, helping people, telling people about Jesus to condemn them. We come out to help them understand that they need a Savior like we needed a Savior and bring them into salvation so they can be free of the guilt and shame associated with their sin and that they can go to heaven. That's the idea. We don't do it to condemnation. Jesus is literally talking about that. When I walk up to somebody and saying, you're going to hell because of your sin. Well, that's a true statement, but I have no interest in helping them not go to hell. You see? And so I'm condemning them. And that's what we're not supposed to do. Don't forget that you're going to hell too because of your sin is the idea. Now he continues this. Don't be a hypocrite. The problem with the crowd that he's teaching, these are all believers, disciples, followers of Jesus, probably not knowing that he is the Messiah or the Savior of the world. But he understands that the thinking and the teaching of the day from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the religious rulers, always drew comparison to other people. I'm not like the sinner. I'm not like the Gentile. I'm not like that man or this woman. I'm not like them. And that made them feel better. And so the teaching would go like this, no matter what my sin was, as long as your sin is worse, I'm higher up on the level. I'm closer to God than you are. And as long as everybody is below me, 
He's got to take me is the thought. I mean, they don't say that out loud, but as long as I make sure everybody else knows that they are wicked and sinners and that's all I tell them, it keeps them down and me up. That's stepping on people and using them like a ladder. And that was the teaching of the day. Jesus is going absolutely against the normal cultural teaching at the time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had planks in their eye. They were being hypocrites when they pointed out the specks in everybody else's eye. It's a dangerous place to be. He says, I don't, I don't want you to do that at all. Now, this is a long cross-reference, okay? Um, and I coined a quote that I had to write down because I want to make sure I had it right. I think um, sometimes when I'm off the cuff, um, obviously I get it wrong a lot of times. I say the wrong thing or I say it the way I don't want to, so I wrote it down. Liberal Christianity is self-canceling. That's a new word that we use more, so I'm going to use it. Instead of self-destructive, it's self-canceling. If we saved sinners, or if we saved sinners, cannot speak of and condemn that for which Christ saved us, we are impotent, no salt, dim lights in this present darkness. If the idea is that we're not supposed to judge anybody, which is what liberal Christianity teaches. In other words, they teach it in the, self, in the sense that we can't talk about sin anymore. We absolutely undermine all that Christ died for because it has to be recognized that he died for something. And if we're not allowed to talk about that something, which is sin, then we've absolutely made ourselves useless. We've rendered ourselves useless as a church. What is the point? How can we be light if we won't cast a beam of light on the darkness? How can we be salt if we're not doing what salt does best as a preservative and as a flavor to this world? And by saying that in liberal Christianity, you're not supposed to talk about sin. We're all just who we are, or that's not sin, or this isn't sin, or we need to change those things. We absolutely make the cross of Christ of no effect. There's no purpose to be a Christian. There's no reason to follow Jesus as opposed to any other way. It is for sin that Christ died. And we have to understand that, that when Jesus is saying don't judge, he's saying do not condemn. You can't. You're not in that place. You don't have that authority to condemn. Only the judge, the judge, Jesus Christ himself, can condemn somebody to hell. I cannot. Neither can you. That's what he's saying. Now this 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 is a long one, but I want you to hear what Peter, who is at this sermon that we just read in Matthew, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what he teaches in his letter, his second epistle, which is considered Scripture, God's Word, right out of his mouth. It's a long one, but please bear with me. This is a non-judgmental chapter, but it is useful for rebuke, for exhortation, to teach. But there were also false prophets among the people. Already he's identified somebody and called them a name. You're a false prophet. Don't judge me. Among the people. Even as there will be false teachers among you, don't judge me, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. He's already describing their end. 
who they are, what they do, and what their end will be, and this isn't judgmental. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. So he's already saying they're covetous. They will exploit you with deceptive words. Their words are lies. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. It's coming, Peter's saying about that. This is not judgmental. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. That's still not judgmental. These are facts. These are observations. This is who they are. Saying that is only agreeing with what God's already labeled them with. See, the Bible is the one that judges. The Bible is the one that tells us what's right and wrong. And for me to agree with what God says is not being judgmental. For me to say that I don't fall into that same sin, that's judgmental. As a mere man, I am susceptible to all of these things and may be in the middle of any of these sins. And knowing that about myself... And being able to say out loud to somebody else, these are sin. Sam, we're not supposed to gossip. I can say that to Sam if I find us here gossiping about somebody. You know, that Jerry Veer, what a creep. Did you hear what he said? You know, and Sam respond. He did say that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And Sam is obligated to say, JD, don't be gossiping right now. Don't judge me, Sam. No, he's not. He's calling it. We're we're called to do that with each other. We're called to call each other out on this stuff. That's normal Christianity. That is biblical Christianity. In fact, we're expected to do it. We're not supposed to keep quiet about it. We're not supposed to sweep it under the rug. That's how those problems get worse and worse. We expose. We shine light on it. In our lives, first, plank people, And then in other people's lives as well, it's what we do. It's what we're called to do. It's morality. It's walking with the Lord. It's being obedient to God. It's it's becoming more like Christ each and every day. We're called to that. Peter goes on and on, calling them natural brute beasts. Brute, I I mean, it's, okay, so now I don't want to spend the rest, you can read that whole second chapter if you want to, but Peter writing this, after being at this sermon right here, filled with the Spirit, writes that chapter 2, it's not being judgmental. He's not. Now, the very next verse, chapter verse 6 of Matthew 7, is Jesus, the perfect person, walking the walk, filled with the Spirit, baptized by John, his cousin, just got done telling us not to judge anybody, and here's what he says. Do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. He just called groups of people dogs and swines. Jesus himself, our next, my next answer is, well, Jesus can do that. He doesn't have any specks in his eye, is the thought. No, he's living the life that we live. 
He's being an example to us. I don't want you as people, Jesus says, to take the holy things that God has given you and cast it to somebody who doesn't appreciate what that is that you're giving to them. Those people are like dogs. They need to be changed into sheep, but they're like dogs right now. They, they go after their own vomit. They live the way they want. They're under nobody's authority. Don't cast your pearls before swine. We're not obligated to do that because they'll turn and rend you or tear you to pieces, he says. Now, Matthew chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 I tried to send these to you, Aaron, but I didn't get it sent, so I apologize for that. He says this to the folks as he's telling them to go out and preach the gospel into all the world. He sends them out two by two. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. You're not obligated to do it. If they're like, get out of here, you, you jerks, I hate you, I hate Jesus, I don't want to hear about the Savior, you don't have to sit there and beg them. Please listen. Please listen. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to bug you. I don't want to bother anybody with the gospel if they don't want to hear it. Paul says, actually God says, but Paul also said, let's reason together. You can only reason with reasonable people. If they do not want to reason with you, you're not obligated to try and reason with them. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear, I hate you. I hate God. I hate everything about it. All right. I'm not here to make you saved. I'm not here. I can't talk you into it. I can't convince you. It's very important we understand this because he's building on something here. I don't want you to judge people. I don't want you to spend your life pointing out everybody's flaws because some people don't care and they don't want to hear it. They just don't. So do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. See, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once I come to Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment waiting for me. But it doesn't mean he stops working on me and removing the sin from my life. Taking things out and need to go. He's not judging me. That's been taken care of at the cross. My sin was judged at the cross, and Christ paid the price for all that. But he still wants to purify me. He still wants to purify us and bring us closer to him, to, more, to be more like him. He's not done yet. We're going to go through a couple of things here, but he's going to come back to this judgment thing. Ask, he says to the crowd, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there who among you, who if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent or a snake? If you then being evil, (laughs) that's not judgmental, it's just a fact, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule. It's spoken of in many other religions, but it's never spoken of this way, in the positive. It's always spoken of, don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. Just don't. You know, This is the first time he says, in a positive way, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. I want people to call me out. 
on stuff. I appreciate that from friends, you know. I don't want enemies calling me out. I don't have any. I don't have any use for them. I don't have anything to. I, whatever. I, you're you're not my friend. You're not looking out for my best interest. You do not care whether I come around uh, or, or get closer to Christ. But from friends, absolutely. From my wife, for sure. From my kids, they're very good at it. But I know what they mean, and I know why they do it. Is they want dad at his, at his best. They they want that, and and I'll take that. Dad, you're getting kind of you know. Or honey, you you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I could feel it. I was just ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit to cause me to repent. But thank you for helping, and you're right. It's obviously evident that I need to do something. I appreciate that. Do that. Now, what he's giving them permission, and what he's explaining to them for the first time they've ever heard this, is that you can knock, you can ask, and you can seek on your own, and your heavenly Father will give it to you. That's not what they're taught. You have to go to the rabbi. You have to go to the Pharisee. You have to go to the Sadducee, and they'll filter what you're supposed to hear. And it's, it's filtered in a wrong way. You're getting Pharisee. You're getting, you're getting condemnation. Jesus says, no, no, no. Go right to him. Ask. He's going to give it to you. Just ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Now, he's talking about the things of God. Understand that. He just got done in verse 6 saying, holy things, pearls, valuable things to you. The things of God are valuable to you. They're lovely. You don't have to give those away to be run over. And if you want more of those things, ask God, and he'll be more than happy to give you whatever. It's bread. It's life to you. It sustains you. God will do that for you, he says. That's a wonderful promise. Now, the narrow way. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I have taught, and probably taught wrongly, that it's narrow only because few people travel it, and that's not necessarily true. He does say here that it's narrow and it's difficult. I think it's important that we know why it's narrow, and why it's difficult. What makes it narrow? What well, makes it narrow because it's God's way. Holiness, purity, um, perfection, love, agape love, not the other kind of loves in the world, but truly selfless love. There's only one way for that. That's, that makes it narrow. The right thing to do is narrow. There aren't variations of the right thing. There's the right thing to do, and it's narrow. If you want to get to heaven, it's a narrow way because Christ has provided, or God has provided a way through his son, Jesus. It's one way. Now, he has the capacity as a narrow gate to take everybody in through that gate. He is the gate. Everybody can come to heaven through him. It's not that. It's not that, well, there's no no quota. You know, well, we've reached 10. That's it. No, everybody can go through the gate. But most won't. And that is one of the things. I, I think Mike McIntosh was going to India to do a crusade, and I was at a pastor's conference, and he was teaching. And he's, he's pretty quirky, you know, sometimes. Wonderful man of God. Um, started, his, started his walk with the Lord by having a Bible in his hand on the beach and seeing that Richard Nixon, the president at the time, was up in his beach house, and he was going to go give him this Bible God told him to. And he just started walking towards his house. Secret service are like, what are you doing? He goes, the Lord told me to give this Bible to Richard Nixon, President Nixon. 
I'll take that. <laughs> well, I gave it to who I, and he walked away. Because mission accomplished. I got as close as I could. I gave it to him. So he's that kind of pastor, okay? Well, he's in India, and he's on his way to the venue where he's going to be sharing the gospel with hundreds of thousands of people, you know, a lot of people in India. He says, I just felt this strong impression as I was in the back of the cab that God said, everybody you see from here on out is going to hell. And it overwhelmed him. It overwhelmed him, the amount of people he was seeing. And please understand that when we read this passage from Jesus Christ himself, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Most people, most not a select few like Hitler or Stalin or who we like to think of as really the worst of the worst. That was the Pharisee and the Sadducees teaching of the day. Finding the worst of the worst and standing on top of their heads saying, well, at least I'm above them, so I've got to go. And that's not, how, that's not how it works. The comparison is to Jesus Christ. This is what is expected of anybody who wants to go to heaven to live the perfect life like Christ showed us, this is what fulfilling the law looks like. This is what living in obedience to God looks like. And as long as you were exactly like him your entire life, then you're going to heaven. You can see why when he says this, it is a, it is a broad path that leads to hell. Everybody in the world is condemned already for hell. Everybody. And there is a way of salvation provided for everybody to escape that condemnation that they've brought upon themselves. I refuse to live for God. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to do my own thing. And that own thing leads them to destruction. And so Christ came. And he's the narrow gate that provided a way, the death associated with our sin, to defeat death at the cross. Come by this narrow gate. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. No other way. Jesus said that. So if you're a Christian, you have to believe that because Jesus said that. There is no other way to get to heaven but through Christ. Jesus said, he who has the Son has the Father. He who does not have the Son does not have the Father. If you don't have the Son, if you don't have Jesus Christ, then you are not going to heaven. Christianity is narrow but inclusive. All, everyone, it's available. But it's difficult is the second part of this. Why is it difficult? Because it means dying to yourself. It means dying to my opinion about chapter 7 before I read it. It means dying to my presuppositions, to my thoughts, me being God of my own life, including God maybe into some of the aspects of my life, but not giving him my whole life and running my life with this nice little sidekick, Jesus, who's going to help me along the way. That's not it. It's narrow because it's difficult to make Jesus, this Middle Eastern Savior, your king and Lord of your life is a much bigger deal than just bringing him alongside or putting him in our back pocket or carrying him along like a, like a rabbit's foot. It's narrow because it's, it's everything. It requires all of us and all of our hearts, and all of our minds, to give him every aspect. It's all his. And many people can't do that. It's too difficult. I can't do that. I can't let go of this. I can't let go of that. This is far more important to me than than Jesus. 
I just can't. You can. We just choose not to. The rich young ruler, a perfect example. I've kept all the law my whole life. What else do I need to get saved? What else must I do? He asked Jesus. He says, that's great. Now sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he went away sad. I can't do that. I mean, I, you, of course you could. Of course you could. But you can't. In other words, you won't. That's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it hard is to realize how far gone I am how much of a lens I brought into this world or I've developed over time before I come to Christ. I've got it all figured out. I've had to figure it out. And I don't fault people for that that don't know Jesus. You've grown up in a world without Christ and you haven't been able to, you've had to survive and you've developed yourself a system of how to survive in this world, how to interact with people, how to get by, how to lie, how to steal, how to get where you need to go without letting anybody know about it. And I understand that. That's been developed. You've worked on this, and now you come to Christ, or you come to church, or you come to a, the Bible for the first time, and you've got this lens you're looking through. And it starts off with, how can I manipulate my way into heaven? I want to go to heaven, but I don't want all that. As I'm reading this, I'm seeing there's a lot of things I'm supposed to do. I'm looking for loopholes. I'm looking for ways around, workarounds, quick fixes, shortcuts. It's natural. It's the lens we've built. It's a hard thing. It's a difficult thing to put that lens down and say, oh, my goodness, the depravity. My heart is so dark. My mind is so off. I am so blind. I can't believe I can't. I haven't been able to hear this all this time. It's getting to that place where you give him everything. But when you do, when you get to this place where you've walked through the narrow gate, it's unbelievable if you've never experienced it. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but if you're watching online or if you're here tonight and you've never given him everything in your life, all of it, you've never been born again, you've never let him take out that whole hard, cold, stony heart of yours and given you his heart, you've never given him your mind and letting him put your his mind in you, the mind of Christ, and you begin to see things with his eyes, you begin to do works that are not self-serving, but others serving. When you begin to live that life and understand that, it's just an unbelievable experience. And it's not just an experience. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong, it gets better and better. It gets easier and easier. It gets more wonderful as you walk with him. Sometimes I focus on the, yeah, you got to get saved. I, got, I like to talk about, here's what it's like when you're saved, if you don't know it. It's amazing. You didn't realize the life was supposed to be like this. You didn't realize you didn't have to defend yourself against everybody. You didn't realize you could just break it down and just walk with him and, and let him be your defender. And you don't have to fight for your own rights or your own, uh, your own vengeance or anything. You don't have to get people back. You don't have to remember what they did to you. You don't have to write all this stuff down. You can just walk and do the next thing for Christ. And let him worry about the people that, well, aren't happy with you. Just keep walking with him. It's wonderful. He frees us up to not judge, to not condemn 
Few find it, he says. He's telling this crowd, there's few that find it. Now they're all like, I want that. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Okay, we're not supposed to judge. You see what he just said there? I want you to look at all the sheep that are out there, and I want you to know ahead of time that some of them aren't. And the only way you're going to know that they aren't sheep is by what they do. So in other words, I want you to judge their actions, and that will tell you what kind of person they are, whether they're a wolf or whether there's a sheep, whether they're a sheep. He's telling us to see and observe sin or see and observe someone who has a caring, loving heart and to know the difference between those two things. He just called them to do that. I want you to be aware that there are false prophets out there, and they're going to look like sheep because they're dressed like sheep. And inwardly, though, they want to eat you alive. They're not interested in your well-being. And you'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit, you will know them. A spirit-filled person has the fruit of the Spirit. You can't fake that. We come at the Scriptures sometimes in the wrong way. We read Galatians 5.22 as a list of things to accomplish or to get better at. Those Fruits of the Spirit, which start with love and work their way through to gentleness, patience, long-suffering, kindness, all those things are a result of a Spirit-filled life and can only be produced in a person's life from the Holy Spirit in their life. So when I find myself falling short of Galatians 5.22, looking at my own fruit in my own life, I say, where is this? It isn't something I strive for. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more patient. Oh, I wasn't patient. No. Wait a minute. I'm going to be more kind. Stupid. You know? No, no, no. What I ask for is, God, fill me with your spirit. Let me decrease that you might increase. Lord, take all of me. Forgive me. What am I holding back from you? Take it from me right now and fill me. Flood me. Overflow me with your spirit. I just want to be poured into. I want you to take over. What is it that needs to go in my life? And you just cry out to the Lord. Ask and you will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and will be opened to you. And he's going to give you. In fact, in another scripture, in John, he says these exact same things. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He goes through all those things. For your good Father in heaven knows, and of course he'll give you the Holy Spirit. He replaces good things with the Holy Spirit in John. See, I don't need to work on the gifts. I need to be a vessel open to the Holy Spirit. And the gifts come naturally. They just flow. The fruit happens because I'm a fruit tree now. I'm not a thistle. I'm not these other things. I'm a fruit tree. Make that joke. You remember we used to teach you know, fruit apple trees not out there going, you know, there it is, you know. <laughs> no, it just sits there. Sucks up nutrients, takes the sun in, lets the breeze blow, lets the bees do their thing. And all of a sudden, I've got apples. And I keep doing my thing, and they keep getting bigger and juicier. Pretty soon they fall off. 
and somebody else eats them, and I propagate, you know. It's amazing. The walk with Jesus is very simple. It's let him fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will produce the fruit in your life. It's not for you to produce. He produces it in you. And he warns them about that. You're going to know these false prophets because they're not going to have that fruit. That's how you'll know. But I want you to be a fruit inspector. He's called us to that. And that's not judging. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So those aren't things I'm looking for. I'm not looking at sheep and wolves wondering which are which and seeing, well, they prophesy. Well, they cast out demons. Well, they do signs and wonders. They must be, they must be spirit-filled people. Nope. Nope. Very dangerous thing when the church gets excited about this stuff. In the book of Revelation, we see that that's exactly what the Antichrist does to lure people towards him is he will do prophecies, he will cast out demons, he'll do signs and wonders. These are false things that he's able to do. That is not the evidence of someone who is a spirit-filled believer. We think it's exciting when there's a prophecy. Or, oh, wow, look at that guy cast out demons, and there's a sign or a wonder or the healing or any of those things. Oh, my goodness. No, those are gifts of the Spirit or gifts, period, that need to happen. I've seen a lot of people on TV that aren't spirit-filled believers get people out of wheelchairs. And that's only because God wanted that person out of the wheelchair and he'll use any vessel he needs to get that person. If he wants to do a healing and that guy that swings his coat around is the only guy available, that's fine. Get Bob out of that wheelchair because I love Bob. Benny, on the other hand, I've got, did I say that out loud? I'd be careful, Benny's. If you don't know, it's Benny Hinn. He's got some issues. Anyway. You know them by their fruit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, I should say, in Galatians 5.22. Not by prophecies, demon, um, you know, exorcisms and, and uh, wonders. I'm going to say to those people, you practice lawlessness. Get out of here. You just use my name. Wow. You just use my name to get those things accomplished, but you're not mine. I never knew you. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on his house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That was the last thing he said to them on that mountain. Everybody heard in both of those scenarios, but only one of the people did. That's the key. It's everything. Implementation of God's word in our lives, doing what we heard tonight in the Bible study, receiving it in our hearts, applying it to our lives, is a person who's wise and is now building upon a rock. Hearing it and discounting it and walking away, being a forgetful person, not remembering what they heard or saw, that's the person who's still building on the sand. And they will not know until 
the trials come. It's when the trials come that shows us, have I been building on the rock or have I been building on sand? When the trials come and I'm still standing, I'm like, well, all right. Marriages, raising our kids, a pastor, a congregation, a work, (laughs) employees, whatever it may be, when trials come, the believer who's been doing what God has been telling them to do, they stand against anything because they're standing on something that's more stable than themselves. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The difference being is Jesus would tell them, this is what it means, this is what you do. And that was new to them because they had nothing but arguments and debates in the synagogues and in the temple or wherever they went between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't even get along. And they were the religious rulers of the day. And they were always arguing. And they were always wondering, well, you know, one of the problems between these two groups was one believed that there was a resurrection from the dead, an everlasting life, like this isn't it. When we die, we go on to do something else, be more. And the other group actually believed Nothing happened. You just kind of evaporated. And so the people that thought, well, nothing's going to happen when you die. We just turn back into worm food. There's no, there's no more after this. There's no resurrection of the dead. We just die. They would argue with these guys all the time and say, so, okay. And they give these scenarios. So, so what if a brother or a, 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 a guy has a wife and, and he dies and doesn't have any kids and it's the next boy's responsibility to take her and he has her and then and then he dies and then he has, and they go through the whole family. When they die and they're in this place, you guys say, this magical fairyland of everlasting life, whose wife is she? Now they said that to Jesus. But they would have those kind of arguments, these scribes. And of course the Pharisees are going, hmm, that's a really good question. It's a good point. Well, And they would have to come up with a solution. And all the people listening to this on top of the mountain were used to that. They'd show up at synagogue, and there they go. Oh, we're talking about marriage again in the everlasting. Okay. And they got nothing from it. They left not knowing what to do. They left not closer to God. They left not having assurance of of any hope. And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching because when he taught, he says, it's like this. And this is what happens. It's black and white. It's very matter of fact. Here's what you do next. And they're like, thank you. That's all we've ever wanted was to know. Thank you for feeding us. Some of the quotes from other the people in the Bible. I had several, but I'm only going to do a couple of them here. John the Baptist in chapter 3 just said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance? That's not judgmental. To call them a brood of vipers? Jesus actually later on in this book of Matthew, uh, about 10 or 12, I don't remember exactly where, says this, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks to the same crowd, same guys, the Pharisees. Both were called Brood of vipers by some of the most holy men on earth, the greatest prophet that ever lived, John the Baptist, and Jesus, the Messiah, both called them brood of vipers, and it wasn't judgmental. It was factual. They were unaware of their condition. They were unaware of their distance from God. They were unaware. 
And so when these two men looked right in the eye and said, you guys are in desperate need of a Savior. You're in desperate need of salvation. You need a sacrifice. You need the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You need to be baptized. You need to be born again. Nicodemus came by night trying to understand, why did you call us brood of vipers? Nick, you've got to be born again or you're not going to understand the things of the Spirit. How can a man be born again? And he struggled with it. But Nicodemus was a reasonable man who wanted to reason with the Savior. And he spent time with Nicodemus to bring him to that place. John chapter 3, it's what a, bring him to that place of salvation, wants him to understand. And Nicodemus wanted to know. He wasn't there yet, but willing to be called a brood of vipers. How come I'm a brood of viper again? Why am I a viper? Well, here's why, Nick. Because Jesus was always looking out for their well-being. To call them that was to bring it, bring them to that place of, I need help. And that's where we close tonight. We need help. The world needs help. And if the world is telling me to be quiet about sin, to not talk about the condition of man all over the world, then we become the salt that gets thrown out and trampled underfoot. We are no longer the lights we're called to be. Unless we get confused or think that we just need to go out blazing, remember the very first part of this is to remember the condition we were in and are in ourselves. That if I understand that about myself, that I am in desperate need of a Savior, that my sin has separated me from God, and that I cannot speak to anybody until I recognize that about myself, we can help each other. And we go out not telling people they're wrong or that they're worse or that they're in trouble and you're not, but to help them come to the understanding of salvation like you did because you care for them and you love them. People get saved that way. People come to know that you have a heart for me, that you're not just calling me a viper, you're calling me a viper telling me to bear fruits worthy of repentance, that I'm in need of a Savior. They didn't get caught up. Nick didn't get caught up in the fact that John called him a viper, that Jesus called him a viper. You want to know why? What do I do about it? That's a good question. Let me help you with that. Because I love you, Nicodemus. Because I love you. We need to love this world, but we need to love this world with truth. And tell them. Talk to them. And with that love for them, with that heart for that person, bring them to that understanding of Christ. That they might be as saved as you are through Christ. That your planks removed and that their speckle get removed. And so on. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for leading us and explaining to us. And we've heard a lot of things tonight. And now your word just said tonight in that chapter that we need to be doers of this. To be doers. That our house might be on a rock. That we might be standing on something more firm than ourselves, or our own will, or our own ideas, or our own lens that we've built for this world. That we surrender all that to you now. We give up all of our presuppositions about how we're supposed to move forward or get to heaven or have a relationship with God. We accept what your word says here. This is what it looks like. 
This is what's expected. Help us to now be doers of that. Lord, I pray that you bless these people and bless the folks watching online. And Lord, we just pray. We pray for eyes to be opened, our hearts to be surrendered, for pride to be brought low, and uh, that you'd be able to do a work in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, come on up. Be glad to pray with you.